Support the Metropolitan Opera Guild like never before. We are proud to announce a unique and exciting online auction benefiting our education programs. You and your friends will have the ability to bid on one-of-a-kind opera memorabilia, luxurious travel packages, exclusive experiences with esteemed opera singers, and much more. Our auction opens on May 14th at 12 noon and is available to the general public through June 4th, ending at 11.59 p.m. Eastern Daylight Savings Time. For more information and to register as a bidder, please visit charityauction.bid slash ONA online auction. Here's a multi-part quiz question for you. Who was the first singer of color to perform a lead role on the Met Opera stage? And if you know the singer, what was the opera and what was the role? Find out all this and more on this episode of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast. The Metropolitan Opera Guild is dedicated to enriching people's lives through an awareness and deeper appreciation of opera. Our podcast features lectures and events presented by the Guild in support of performances at the Metropolitan Opera. The Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast is funded in part by support from the Stuart J. Pierce Memorial Fund. To learn more, visit metguild.org. Legendary contralto Marian Anderson was the first singer of color to perform a lead role on the Met Opera stage, singing Ulrika from Verdi's Un Ballo in Mascara in 1955. This is just one example of the impact of black women on operatic history, and in this episode of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast, we explore the incredible legacy of women who broke barriers for black artists, dating all the way back to the late 1800s. I'm your host, Naomi Baratera, and this episode features lecturer and music librarian Tanisha Mitchell as she explores the trailblazers, the sprinters, and the torch-bearing women who are part of the enduring legacy of Black singers in opera. Part two, obviously, are the women. And um, we begin this part with somebody from the late... 1890s that fell into obscurity. And I will just get back to here. This is tribute to black women in opera. And my dedication for this portion is dedicated to Jesse Norman. And uh, I'm not discrediting anybody else in this presentation. It's just that Jesse Norman is special to me because um, remember back in the day when we had those uh, infomercials. There was an infomercial for opera CDs. I'll never forget it. I was eight or nine years old, and it was the time where you had those CDs. I think they were for one cent, and you had like a collection of CDs. Yeah, that's way, way back. Okay. Well, I was sitting there, and I said, there was this one woman. We had Pavarotti. We had Freni. Many, many people. Um, and there was one black woman in this infomercial, and it was Jessie Norman. And that was really the first time that my life has been open to opera because I asked my mom, who is this woman? 
she's amazing. Who is this? And she introduced me to Jesse Norman, Norman who passed away last year. So when it comes to female opera singers, we have many categories. We cannot paint it with a broad stroke. We have contralto and the mezzo-soprano. Now, back in the day, in the 50s and the 60s, what I've noticed is that the contralto is mentioned a lot. And then all of a sudden, she falls into obscurity. Uh, can anybody tell me a famous contralto from the 1990s? Can't tell me, can you? And back in the day, you had uh, Ms. Ferrier. You had Jesse, um, not Jesse Norman, excuse me, you had Marian Anderson. But the contralto and mezzo-soprano, they're interchangeable. Because sometimes, as uh, Ulrika, for example, in Ballo in Mascara, it, the person that's hired could be a contralto, but she doesn't have to be. She could be a mezzo-soprano, as we will see. Coloratura. This uh, role is often mistakenly seen as, oh, you sing Oscar in, in uh, Ballo in Mascara. Can you also sing Aida? No. She cannot. They represent a total, she represents the coloratura, a total different type of character, more of a young character, uh, somebody who could either be a doll, one of my favorites that we will hear, or someone who is a pants role as an Oscar in Ballo in Mascara. Our lyric soprano, this is the diva really that people think of. And a lot of, a lot of lyric sopranos, they also do dramatic rep. So they can be interchangeable as well. So we move along to anybody have heard of this woman? Matilda Ciciaretta Joyner Jones. She was considered the Black Patty. This is from the late 1890s into the early 1900s. And I'd like to show you this clip from Carnegie Hall, where we talk about, not me, but the person, the archivist at that time, discusses this singer that fell into obscurity. Hello, my name is Gino Francesconi. I'm the director of the archives in the Rose Museum at Carnegie Hall. Here's a singer, a vocalist, that's been forgotten and shouldn't be. Her name was Ciciaretta Jones, and she was known in her day as the Black Patti. That's how she was identified. And Adelina Patti, as you can see here in this program, was uh, one of the great singers of her day, and she was simply known as Patti. And so Ciciaretta Jones was known as the Black Patti. And now imagine, here was a woman who, at her peak of performing, had sung at the White House was making $2,000 a week. She divorced her husband and won. She sued her white manager and won. And she was singing around the world. And she was given brooches and medals made out of, of diamonds and rubies or gold. And she would wear them at every recital like a brigadier general. She would walk out in these astonishing gowns and having all of her... Uh, awards attached to her gown. And then her mother became ill in Providence, Rhode Island. She gave up everything to be with her mother. 
She had four homes around the country, and when she stopped singing, the money stopped coming in, and one by one she had to sell her homes. And then one by one she had to sell these phenomenal medals and brooches. And yet uh, it wasn't enough, and by 1930 uh, she died in poverty and forgotten, and she's buried in Providence, Rhode Island. We were thrilled when we discovered that Howard University had one of only three medals that she kept for herself as souvenirs. And one of those medals is one that was given to her at Carnegie Hall. It's an extraordinary piece and we're grateful to Howard University that they've given it to us on an extended loan where it's on view in the museum on a regular basis. Black Patty, as Leontine Price said, because of her, they are. She wasn't the only singer during that time, but she's, I think, out of that, the many singers, because I know there was one, uh, she was considered the Black Swan. I can't think of her name off the top of my head, but Cicioretta Jones is one of the primary <laughs> leaders of that era. So the contralto, mezzo-soprano, what role does she play in opera? Controversial. She can either be, as in her bass baritone counterpart, the mother. Usually when opera singers get older, they're those singers whose voices get lower at the time, their tessitura, so they go for these roles. But she plays the mother. There's also pants roles that this, uh, the uh, mezzo-soprano contralto could play. Uh, another example would be Carabino, because I was talking about a pants role with Balo and Mascara, but Carabino in Le Nozze di Figaro. But then you have the sexual roles. Anyone give me a famous sexual uh, mezzo-soprano role? Carmen. And there's another one where she tells this man, what's your secret? And she chops off his hair. Delilah. So this poses a problem for a black singer. It poses a problem. But what we're going to see, the theme with the ladies is that they don't discuss, a lot of them don't discuss race as much as the men. And our trailblazer is, of course, we cannot think of opera and especially the legacy of black opera without this woman here. And I'm just, I'm not even going to say who she is uh, because she, you probably could figure out who she is, but I'm going to leave it to Todd Duncan, who we learned about, to talk about her famous Met debut along with other opera people in the industry. Excuse me. Here we go. In 1955, Marian Anderson broke the last remaining barrier to black classical singers in America when she sang at New York's Metropolitan Opera. I think it's a dream of everybody who is a singer that they want to sing at the so-called apex, the top, uh, and that was the Metropolitan Opera. I got a call saying uh, Miss Anderson is going to be at uh, Rudolph Bing's office at 3 o'clock this afternoon. 
to sign the contract for the Metropolitan Opera engagement. And of course, she was the first black singer to be engaged and broke the ice at the Metropolitan. And I went down and it was a very thrilling but quiet moment, I must say, with Miss Anderson in her own quiet way signing the contract with, with Mr. Bing. And then I was there when she made her debut at the Metropolitan as Ulrika in uh, Bala Mascara of Verdi. I was a little angry because they should have asked Miss Anderson years and years and years before. There was no greater contralto anywhere greater than Miss Anderson, and she should have been asked before. And it looked like that they were finally in the twilight of her career. We all come to that. That's when they asked her. She had never stood on an opera stage in her life. And there's a difference in singing a concert and singing in an opera. Everyone knows that. She had all of that plus the excitement of that night. And there was so much electricity in the air that you could just feel it. But she came through with flying colors. She did. She really did. She was marvelous. There have been literally hundreds of black singers who have followed Marian Anderson to the Met. Her career was an inspiration for many. This was an excerpt from Marian Anderson, a voice heard once in a hundred years for 1998. So as you hear with Todd Duncan, he said, I thought they should have asked her before, ahead of time, when she was in the prime of her career, but this was in the autumn of her career. However, one cannot deny that this woman is a cultural icon, uh, not only because of her voice, but her stage presence, known for closing her eyes while she'll sing. That's so symbolic. I would try to do that too when I'm nervous. But you knew she wasn't nervous. She, I mean, if she was, you didn't know. Her career started out like Roland Hayes as a concert artist, however, I believe she will always be defined by two cultural events that shed a huge light on racial segregation, not only in society, but in the arts. The first one was what you heard before, and the second one is what you are about to hear. Uh, she was the first African-American singer to be caught in a national debate about singing for the Daughters of the, the um, American Revolution. And a lot of people remember this when you learn about Marian Anderson. They, the preliminary thing that you learn about her significance is the 1939 incident where the Daughters of the American Revolution denied her from performing at Constitutional Hall in Washington, D.C. However, First Lady at the time, Eleanor Roosevelt, invited Miss Anderson to perform at the Lincoln Memorial instead on Easter Sunday that year. Here is the famous clip of Marian Anderson singing, My Country Tis of Thee. 
genius, genius draws no color line. And so it is fitting that Marian Anderson should raise her voice in tribute to the noble Lincoln whom mankind will ever honor. Miss Marian Anderson. we will get into the ladies who followed in this category. First up, this is a personal story for me. I'll never forget walking outside of the Met. And this woman came up to me and she, she asked me, she's like, um, oh, you, you know, you look like you're inquisitive. What do you do? I said, oh, well, I'm, I'm studying music as a teacher and a singer. And she said, you need to be more proud when you say that. You need to speak up and stand straight and say it. This lovely person at the height of her career, New York Times critic Anthony Tomasini described her as a remarkably complete and distinctive operatic artist. She had a plush, rich, and powerful voice, thorough musicianship, insightful dramatic skills, charisma, and beauty. If she never quite reached mythic status, she came close. Again, this is the role of critics in a singer's legacy. And this is the lovely Shirley Verrett. Shirley Verrett, what a voice that she had. Before notoriety, she caught the interest of a prominent Juilliard voice teacher. And subsequently, she won a scholarship to Juilliard. At the highlight of her career, when she made opera history at the Met, she played two roles, Cassandra and Dido, in Berlioz's Les Troyens. Her roles include uh, Metropolitan Opera um, in 1968, excuse me, with Carmen at La Scala in 1969, Samson and Dalila, an amazing costume. Look up that costume. I didn't put it here because it's not in the context of the presentation. But if you look up that costume, it's inspiration, okay? And it was before its time. Uh, Shirley Verrett is the first of the two major, two major singers. She's the first of the two to switch from mezzo to soprano. So in the 70s, you saw, the 60s, late 60s, you saw her doing mezzo roles. Then in the 70s, she started to switch and the mezzo roles she tackled, Ulrika, Amneris, Eboli, Azucena, Dalila, my favorite. And then all of a sudden, when she switched, she conquered the biggest soprano roles. One of my favorites, Macbeth. 
Lady Macbeth. And the second one, uh, many, but the second one that she's known for doing as a soprano, Tosca, opposite Luciano Pavarotti. Uh, you can, it's, it's available on DVD. Uh, her landmark performance in 1975 as Lady Macbeth, uh, critics labeled her in Italy, La Nera Callis, the Black Callis, and flocked to her every performance. Here is Shirley Verrett singing one of my favorite arias, Voi lo sapete. And I chose this because she started out as a mezzo-soprano. Here we go. at its best. I used to try to sing like that in the shower. I'm telling you. Man, how she grabs the chair and she sings it. Our next mezzo is another in the sprinter category. She is another mezzo who switched over. She went from doing mezzo to soprano roles, um, including in 1961, a career highlight was that she was the first black woman to sing the role of Venus in Richard Wagner's Tannhäuser at Bayreuth, as I mentioned um, before. At age 24, 24, 24, our singers out there, remember the Italian, the 24, the 20 Italian art songs? and That's what I was doing at 24. I'm just saying. I was still doing that. But anyway earning her the nickname Black Venus. Can anyone name this soprano, mezzo-soprano too? Grace Bunbury. Grace Bunbury, what an amazing voice, considered to be one of the leading mezzo-sopranos in her generation, and also soprano. Uh, 
Bunbury began her ascent in the opera industry when she was a joint winner of the Metropolitan Opera National Councils with soprano Martina Arroyo. She made her recital debut in Paris. Bunbury studied with the famous German recitalist Lotte Lehmann when she attended Northwestern University. And when she was 23, <clears throat> 23, she made her opera debut at the Paris Opera as Amneris. In the 1970s, her, um, she started to do more soprano roles. So her roles include, which similar to Shirley Verrett, Tosca. Uh, Salome, Salome was amazing, as I was told, in 1970 in Covent Garden. The list goes on and on. What I love about Grace Bunbury as well, her excellent ability of acting, which you will see. Uh, she, she interprets roles as if she is the role. You can tell a difference, I believe, when a person is acting something or when they've become it. And she especially does this with Carmen. So you will hear Madame Bunbury performing as one of her, um, performing one of her signature roles as Carmen. Before, I would like to also mention she is a 2009 Kennedy Center's recipient. Here we go. That will be one of the best Carmens to go down in history. And she sang that. Uh, it was at the Salzburg Festival opposite one of my favorite tenors of all time, John Vickers. Anyway, we move on to another amazing singer who has a large range. I believe she's really a mezzo and a contralto at once. Beautiful low range. Our next mezzo diva is a contemporary of the two previous singers. She's also considered one of the most prominent mezzos of her generation. And I think of chocolate when I hear her lower register. I know that's like, that's not giving me a clue of who this woman is. Florence Quivar, Philadelphia native. Florence Quivar caught the opera bug as a teenager when she became interested in opera after seeing the Metropolitan Opera's touring production of Madame Butterfly. 
She enrolled, briefly enrolled in the Juilliard School in 1975, but she always says that the Marian Anderson Competition Award helped change her life, which I have a quote here in a recent interview. In 1976, Quivar portrayed Serena in Cleveland Orchestra's production of Gershwin's Porgy and Bess. And that concert recording went on to win a Grammy Award for Best Recording. Other notable listings of characters include Suzuki and Madame Butterfly, Isabella and L'Italiana in Algerie, Frederica and Louisa Miller, and one of my favorites, Princess Abelie in Don Carlo. However, we are going to hear her do Ulrika's aria from Ballo in Mascara. I thought that it was a fitting tribute because she's doing the, at the exact role that Marian Anderson was hired to do. Here is a snippet of Ulrika's aria in Ballo in Mascara. register. My goodness. I was just trying to mouth it to try to get some inspiration from that. All right. So we move on to our torchbearer. Our torchbearer is someone very special to me because she's actually in Porgy and Bess and she's playing the role of Mariah. Can anybody tell me who she is? Denise Graves. Denise Graves. Now, we do have young mezzo-sopranos who are coming up. One, I will mention Janai Bridges. We have her coming up. However, I think that Denise started this new generation of mezzo-sopranos. And she's really singing Mariah very well. Denise Graves is a fine mezzo-soprano 
who is most known for her portrayal of Carmen when she made a splashing debut at the Metropolitan Opera in 1995. And the debut alone gained a lot of press coverage, including a 60 Minutes interview. It's still up there. It's still on YouTube, actually, from their archive. Ms. Graves continues to, con to forge her own path. While teaching, she also performs contemporary opera works like Daniel Poor's Margaret Garner that I mentioned with Greg Baker uh, in our first program. And she also performs unknown works like uh, Kentucky Opera did a production of the three Decembers in 2015. She's now playing more of the roles of the mother or the matriarch of, a, um, of an opera. And a good example is in 2018, she was in Nico Muli's Marnie, playing opposite Isabel Leonard. Here is Ms. Graves, is a younger Ms. Graves, performing her, the famous Abanera from Bizet's Carmen at a Richard Tucker gala. I chose this because I wanted to show you this is why she's, I believe, when you think of her, she's the beginning of the crescendo. She's the beginning as far as black opera mezzos playing roles like Dalila and Carmen. Here is Denise Graves. mezzo-soprano category. Now, on to the coloratura. Coloratura sopranos, I, I feel bad for them because the reason why is because when people think of a diva, they don't think of a coloratura. They think of, we don't think of Roberta, of Roberta Peters, and we surely don't think of the singers that we're about to hear, but they redefined the coloratura 
category. These roles are usually the young, the role of the young girl, or it could be the role of a doll. My favorite. All of these are my favorites, by the way. That's why I'm enjoying myself. So our trailblazer in the coloratura um, uh, category, I believe there would not be a Kathleen battle. There would not be a Rary Grist. There would not be a Harolyn Blackwell if it wasn't for this woman who had a controversial costume matter when she chose to wear makeup that lightens the skin. Her name is Matawilda Dobbs. American coloratura Matawilda Dobbs helped break the color barrier in opera by making groundbreaking appearances at La Scala and Milan in the, and the Met. She was also one of the first African-American singers to debut at the venerable San Francisco Opera. In 1955, she made her San Francisco Opera debut as the lead female role in The Golden Cockerel by Rimsky-Korsakoff. And the same year, she was in the audience in New York when Marian Anderson became the first black singer to appear at the Met. Coincidentally, Dobbs made her Met debut the following year as Gilda in Rigoletto. And she got slack for wearing light makeup as Gilda, and that's, this is her response. White artists who play Aida and Othello put on dark makeup. Why shouldn't we wear light makeup when we play a white character? So that is quite interesting. It is about the makeup going the other way. And indeed, she did wear it. Now, Matawilda Dobbs was fair-skinned, so it was a little easier for her to pull it off. But nevertheless, she's the one, of, she's one of the first coloraturas to open the door. This is from Offenbach's The Tales of Hoffman, where she sings the famous aria, Les Oiseaux dans la Chamille. A trill. Wow. Our next coloratura soprano is also a pioneer. Now, she is the first of the group to cross platforms from Broadway to opera like Greg Baker. This is way before Greg Baker. Uh, she was one of the first to have an international opera career 
as well as a prominent Broadway career. In a 1970 interview for the New York Times, this diva is quoted for saying, for me, black is not just a matter of color. It is the whole emotional economic experience that goes with being black. The whole mixture of good and bad that makes the black experience. Rary Grist began singing her singing her singing career, excuse me, when she performed uh, on Broadway in small roles opposite famous actors like Ozzie Davis and Ruby Dee. She also performed with the famous Eartha Kitt. Although her first opera engagement was as Madame Herz in a concert opera performance of Mozart's Der Schauspieldirektor, her full opera performance was as Cindy Lou. And I would say operatic in quotes because I don't think Carmen Jones is an opera. It's Broadway. But she was Cindy Lou in Carmen Jones, and she was handpicked to play Consuelo in West Side Story. She was handpicked by the composer of West Side Story. Does anybody know who that is? Leonard Bernstein in 1957. Amongst her roles is her debut in 1966 as Rosina in Il Barbieri di Sevilla. And she also does Ariadne, um, excuse me, Zerbinetta in Strauss's Ariadne Alf Noxos. But one of my favorite roles that she's done is Oscar in the famous production of Ballo in Mascara. Here is Oscar's aria from Act One, where Oscar talks about this witch. I like this witch, Ulrika, and I'll tell you why. Here she is. about her she had an impeccable way of moving on stage 
when you saw her that first note, the the first um entrance, and she knew where to to turn. Not a lot of singers know how to do that, and she mastered that. I think it was also because of her Broadway background, but that's just my opinion. So our sprinters uh, is one, our first one, very controversial. However, we cannot, we cannot forget her legacy in this category. She crossed many musical platforms, and this is the first time that it's been done, and especially with a coloratura soprano or a light lyric, we can call her too. She became a household name in the 1980s and 90s, even though she was very controversial. Kathleen Battle. Kathleen Battle is Grammy Award winning. Um, The list goes on with her. You have, for the first time, a black singer performing with people like Janet Jackson. This, that doesn't happen often. Luciano Pavarotti also did this by crossing platforms with being an opera singer, but she did it just as well. Uh, she was even, she was even featured, I think, in a couple of years ago in a rendition of a song with Alicia Keys on stage. So her, her turning point came when she auditioned for legendary American conductor, Thomas Shippers in 1972. And after being awarded with grants to further her career, she was introduced to many other conductors. The 80s and 90s, she had her debuts with the Metropolitan Opera, the New York City Opera, Covent Garden, and San Francisco Opera. And she also used her notoriety to bring the awareness of African-American spirituals to the forefront. A couple of years ago, she did a recital at the Met, and it was called the Underground Railroad. She returned after being uh, absent for 22 years, recall it, and she had a successful concert. However, I, I did not choose her to do spirituals. I chose her to do Despina in Cosi Fan Tutte. This is the lovely Kathleen Battle. Kathleen Battle had that not a lot of opera singers had, and I mean across the board, endorsements, endorsements, and I mean products, mainstream products. Uh, she did an endorsement, I think it was for um, an air, some airline carrier, but there was another one where I know she sings Del Cabe El Masutil. It was very big in Japan. So endorsements are starting to become big for opera singers. 
Can you name anybody today who has a major endorsement with a major Fortune 500 company? Can't name anybody, right? That tells you a lot about where the culture is. But she was one of the first to do that. That's why I named her a sprinter. So now our next person, she started in Broadway like Rary Grist. And she is, is so coincidental. She started in Broadway doing the same role that Rary Grist did as Consuelo. But Consuelo was named a different name. She is a soubrette, lyric, coloratura, soprano, and she performed in major houses throughout the world. And one thing that thrusted her into the spotlight was this. When Kathleen Battle was famously removed, she was the one that took over for Kathleen Battle. It also gained her an interview with Charlie Rose, which is quite interesting. You should check it out. I'll just leave it at that. But Harolyn Blackwell was handpicked by Leonard Bernstein. Isn't this amazing, the connection? to play the role of Francisca, who was originally Consuelo in 1957, but he changed some characters' roles, including that one, in West Side Story. And she later toured with that show. Coincidentally, she actually met and befriended Rary Grist in 1985, and she coached Harolyn Blackwell um, for, she helped her and she coached her for her European debut as Oscar in Verdi's Un Ballo in Mascara. And she repeated the role the following year um, in 1981. Now, after Broadway, she auditioned and was accepted at the Houston Grand Opera and Lyric Opera of Chicago Young Artist Programs. And having to choose between the two, she decided to go to um, Chicago to study. The sky was the limit for her. This woman here, when we watch the Grammys, do you see any opera singers featured in the Grammys on mainstream television? No. And don't say Aretha Franklin. No, we don't. They do give out opera awards, but it's not televised. Well, in the, I believe the early 90s, and I'll never forget, I'm a big R&B fan, Anita Baker stood up and stood up for her. She performed Summertime on the Grammy stage. So that type of exposure, too, is very big and fitting for such an excellent voice. Her roles really mirror the same as Rary Grist. Um, we have Oscar, which you will hear, and she eventually sang in Gershwin's Porgy and Bess for the Glyndebourne Festival. Now, what we saw in part one with the men, Greg Baker performing, that was the, the, that was the production that she performed in. Now, she sang the role, but the person playing the role was not her. Quite interesting. I don't know the, the background behind that, but that is her voice. Here is the lovely Harolyn Blackwell as Oscar again, but she's singing the second aria. I would never have them do the same aria. She's singing the second aria from the last act of Ballo in Mascara. Oh, 
with passion. We now move on to the lyric and dramatic soprano. One might wonder, who are the torchbearers? The torchbearers are going to be towards the end because today we have two sopranos who are doing a similar repertoire from what you are about to hear. Okay, I put these two together because they are interchangeable. Sometimes you might have somebody who sings uh, the lyric um, roles to eventually switch over to sing dramatic roles. But there's nobody who can replace our dramatic soprano who we will hear in this. However, there is an unsung hero. And the unsung hero, our next trailblazer, is unsung because she was the first black soprano to debut with a major opera company in 1946. Now, when we think of the first black singer, a woman, to sing with a major opera company, we think of Marian Anderson. However, there was a woman named Camilla Williams. And Camilla Williams made her debut in Puccini's Madama Butterfly during the year of 46 and at the New York City Opera. And she remained with the company until 1954. The roles she has under her belt were Aida, Mimi, and Nedda. And she also performed as Bess in the first complete recording of Porgy and Bess in 1955. Now, this is quite interesting. I'm leaving that quote all the way up until now. This is interesting. She says, as the first African-American woman to appear with a major American opera company, I had opened the door for Miss Anderson. This is interesting because New York City Opera was a premier opera company at the time. But she did not get credit for that. And with, it was in an article with the New York Times. She says, the lack of recognition for my accomplishments used to bother me, but you cannot cry over those things. Ms. Williams said in a 1995 interview with opera scholar Elizabeth Nash, there is no place for bitterness in singing. It works on the chords and ruins the voice. In his own good time, God brings everything right. Here is Camilla Williams singing Summertime from Porgy and Bess.
Miss Camilla Williams. And now our sprinters, as we wind down to the end of this presentation, is although Marian Anderson opened the door in 1955, there were still, and Camilla Williams opened the door in 1946, there were still few black singers in starring roles with notoriety, especially the main soprano roles. Our next diva was a, one of the first international black stars of opera. And she faced, boy, she faced a lot, death threats. One of the things that happened in early in her career, she received the opportunity to play Tosca um, with NBC uh, Opera. And what happened was there were some cities that would not telecast it at all. And also when they, the Met was also a touring company, when they would tour in the South, she also received death threats from that. In the exhibit at the Met, there's an interesting letter that she writes to Rudolph, I believe Rudolph Bing, and she discusses that. And she also asks, she says, well, I'm in Italy right now, but by the way, will I be able to stay at such and such hotel because remember what happened the last time. You have to read that letter. And we all know who it is now. It is Madam Leontine Price. I discovered Leontine Price in my World Book Encyclopedia. She was next to the term prickly heat. I'm just, because Price and prickly heat, I'm just saying, it's not, you know. But I remember looking her up and I said, who is, I didn't even, I didn't look her up. I was looking up prickly heat, to be honest with you. And I saw this face, because you know in World Book Encyclopedia, they have the faces. I was like, who is this woman? She had on this beautiful fur, and she had the bouffant. I was so attracted to that. Who is she? But many black singers took the same path as Robeson, Hayes, and Marian Anderson, and even her ex-husband, William Warfield, by doing concert repertoire and being recitalists. But Leontine Price, she accomplished so many things by crossing barriers to international acclaim. Although she made her professional opera debut with San Francisco Opera, she flourished as the, well, she was called the Prima Donna Assoluta. From her Met debut as Leonora, opposite the beautiful tenor, Franco Corelli. Had to say that. He's beautiful. Opposite him, um, she had many other debuts. One, I believe, in Salzburg Festival, she played opposite Elizabeth Schwarzkopf in Don Giovanni. Her awards are numerous. 13 Grammys, a Presidential Medal of Freedom, and a Kennedy Center Honor. And when Leontine Price was often asked about her color and her accomplishments, this is her famous quote, accomplishments have no color. She, does, she didn't dwell on the things that were happening to her at the time, and she decided to move on and perform. This is Price as Leonora in Verdi's 
Il Trovatore, Tacea La Notte, from the Bell Telephone Hour. I learned about this from my parents. I didn't know that it existed. Here we go. Price sings Tacea La Notte, in which she tells of the fidelity of her love for the troubadour who has entered her life so mysteriously. to someone who is, she's hilarious. Our next sprinter is taking her priceless experiences as a world-renowned opera star and passing it on to the next generation through her New York-based foundation. I am a product of that foundation. Martina Arroyo. Martina Arroyo's powerful, rich, and flexible voice. I mean, this woman could sing with the agility of a coloratura but had such a big size voice, um, excelled her career to new heights. After winning the Met Opera auditions in the late 1950s, Arroyo took minor roles in Metropolitan Opera Productions. She jokingly credits herself as making her debut before Leontine Price mm -hmm. as the angelic voice in Verdi's um, Aida, the high priestess, excuse me. Um, a, highly, a highlight in her career was in 1965, where she substituted Aida for an ailing Birgit Nielsen. Singing in the world's premier opera houses, uh, Arroyo conquered other roles, including Donna Anna from Mozart's Don Giovanni, Norma, Chocho San, uh, Lou from Puccini's Turandot, and Arroyo received the Kennedy Center Honors in 2013. One of the roles that I love her singing is from Elvira, uh, where she's pictured here in Ernani. But you're not going to hear her sing that. I chose Tu Que Le Vanita, Queen Elizabeth's aria from Don Carlo. Oh, <laughs> 
are winding down. Our next soprano was quite a sensation with a voice that could never be categorized because of her wide range. When asked about how she would categorize her voice, she famously said, pigeonholes are for pigeons. Jesse Norman, there will never, ever, ever be another Jesse Norman. There will never be such a beguiling soprano like her. In the 1970s and 80s, she was a cultural household name around the world. And she is an amazing dramatic soprano who used to perform from mezzo repertoire to soprano repertoire. Although she followed Leontine Price's footsteps with international notoriety, she crossed new barriers by singing more French and especially German repertoire like Wagner and Strauss and Poulenc. Amongst her prestigious awards, she is a 1997 Kennedy Center Honors recipient, uh, a Grammy Lifetime Achievement recipient, and 2009, she also received the National Medal of the Arts. Uh, amazing woman. I, again, I don't know who's following in her footsteps as far as her type of voice. She's one of the ones where you don't really, it, it doesn't come in um, the, what is the term? A voice heard in a hundred years? Well, we shall see. This is Jesse Norman singing the famous aria from Ariadne auf Naxos from Strauss. Es gibt ein Reich. There is a realm, a realm of death, as she's describing not being with her lover. How dramatic. But it's opera.
Jesse Norman, and you look at that vocal apparatus that, and, and her ability to sustain those notes, and especially in the lower register. Now we move on to our torchbearers to end our presentation today. And our first one is from outside of um, America. You have to mention her. You have to mention her. Pretty Ende, South African soprano. And she came into international attention in 2010 when she became the first artist in history to win the Belvedere competition and to win the first prize in every category. She's also the recipient of the Operalia Award. She made her professional operatic debut at the National Theater in Riga as Micaela in Carmen. But she excels in a lot of bel canto repertoire. She's moving out of that because she also performed as um, uh, Violetta in La Traviata. She made her debut in Violetta in Paris in late 2019. I love her debut at the Met. Now, this is the thing that a lot of opera singers dream of. Uh, Deanna Damrau fell ill and Juan Diego Flores was performing in Le Contori. And so she stepped in on few weeks' notice as the Countess Adele. Um, and here is that. The sky is the limit for her. Like I said, she's moving into bigger repertoire. She does do Lucia. But I'm wondering with her doing uh, La Traviata, Violetta in La Traviata, where that will lead her voice. She's also famous for doing Rosina in Il Barbieri di Sevilla, which is a role that was prominent for Rary Grist, um, as well as Harold Blackwell. So I put Pretiende to the end because she's going beyond the coloratura repertoire, but she still uses that technique. Here is Pretiende, 2013 debut, Le Conte where, as her character, she laments to the man who has a crush on her in disguise, which is Juan Diego Flores. Pretiende.
Day, I purposely put her last because she's a star in Porgy and Bess. And um, it's, it's going, you know, it's very touching. I don't care whether you're black or white or green or polka dot to see this woman perform. And what she's doing is amazing. Angel Blue. Angel Blue recognized for her beautiful timbre and stunning stage presence. Angel Blue's voice is lent to Bess in our historical production of Porgy and Bess. And she came into the scene a little later, which is great because she had so much experience in many things. The best that she's doing now, she started out years ago singing Clara. And then from Clara, it went on to Bess. Her credit of performance, I, I mean, the repertoire that she does is wide. Last summer, she made her debut as Tosca in France. Other than Bess, she was the first, believe it or not, usually I use the word first for trailblazers and sprinters, but for a torchbearer, she was the first black Violetta in Verdi's La Traviata at Teatro Alaskala that happened last year, impressively last year. She made her Met debut as Mimi in La Boheme in 2017. A native of Southern California, Blue received her Masters of Music from UCLA, and she also... Um, participated in the L.A. Opera Young Artist Program from 2007 to 2009. The sky is the limit for her. She will be debuting the role of Leonora in Il Trovatore, Verdi's Il Trovatore with the Seattle Opera. The sky is the limit. Angel Blue, this is her singing Mimi's aria, Mi chiama no Mimi. I want to thank everybody for coming and staying. I'm honored. I'm truly honored to do this. Thank you very much. Here is Angel Blue, 2017 debut at the Metropolitan Opera. Mikiyama no Mimi. Oh. 
very much. That was lecturer Tanisha Mitchell exploring the legendary black women who overcame incredible obstacles and triumphed on the operatic stage. Be sure to follow the Metropolitan Opera, the Metropolitan Opera Guild, and Opera News on your favorite social media platforms to keep up to date on all your summer opera content. I'm Naomi Baratera, and thanks for listening.